From time to time, I quote from Augustine, a Christian theologian who lived from 354 to 430 A.D., so quite early in church history. And I was delighted this week to come along an intersection between the life of Augustine and Psalm 32. It turns out that Psalm 32 was one of Augustine's favorite psalms. And in the latter years of his life, he had verses from it inscribed on the wall next to his bed. He loved this psalm, and he is quoted as saying, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself, to be a sinner. That of all the things to know and that need to be known, for the glory of the gospel, we cannot be ignorant of our condition. We cannot be those who are unaware of our great need for Christ or look at the cross and think maybe that was helpful for someone somewhere. Augustine is right. There is a a key in our knowledge that really is so foundational that though we are made in the image of God, we have gone astray in our sin. And this psalm, he said, is a psalm about God's grace and our being justified by no merit whatsoever on our part, but only, he says, by the mercy of the Lord our God. These are reasons why Augustine loved this psalm. And this is before you could buy, you know, placards of these things and verses in Hobby Lobby. He had to put it on the wall himself, you know. This is like, but either way, however the wall looked and whatever his handwriting was like, it was truth that was over him while he slept. And he wanted the joy of of this news, this gospel news and the mercy of God that he says here declares we are justified by no merit whatsoever on our part. This is called a maskil of David. That word hasn't appeared so far in book one. It's a, it's a word that does appear in a series of psalms. A little over a dozen psalms will have this, t- this uh, word in the superscription. It seems to be at its root the idea of a song of instruction. A song of instruction, this masculine word of David means, here's David's composition that has an educative function, not because the earlier psalms lack one, but just to say as explicitly as David does, that there is a purpose in this psalm to help us be wise, to help us be instructed by the Holy Spirit. And the psalm opens in verses 1 and 2 by declaring the blessed state of forgiven sinners. Allow these words to wash over us this morning. What wonderful truth. Blessed is the one whose transgression is covered, is forgiven. Let me restart that. (laughs) Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These two verses declare the blessed state of the forgiven The word blessed means to be happy in a sense, but much more than that. It means more than a kind of happiness that's conditioned by circumstances. We're talking about an inward state of flourishing and vitality. A kind of life that is of God inwardly and that overflows in one's station of life. It is a state of blessedness. This is the pronouncement of God over his people. That they are blessed in this way. They are forgiven. Their sin is covered. Against them the Lord counts no iniquity. This is a blessed, happy state indeed for the people of God. No matter the circumstances outwardly, we shall not die in our sins. Christ has taken our sins and He died in mine and yours so that we should not perish but have everlasting life. So... Come what may, 
Verses 1 and 2 are true for us. Blessed is the one. We've seen this word blessed at the opening of the, of the book of Psalms. The opening Psalm says blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked. And Psalm 2 ends with saying blessed is the one whose refuge is in this son, the Messiah to come. But beyond the opening of the book of Psalms, we haven't seen the word blessed again until today. Until, verse, until chapter 32 and verses 1 and 2, where on, on two occasions in back-to-back verses, we are declaring here the blessed state of the forgiven. A few words talk about what has gone wrong. There is the word transgression in verse 1. The word sin in verse 1. The word iniquity in verse 2. These are the things we have committed We have committed transgression, sin, iniquity. We do these things outwardly and inwardly. We are those who are sinners. The words all ultimately aim at the same idea. We we are people who have gone astray and done wrong. But they do have slight nuances to them. To transgress means that here's a boundary that you've crossed. God has spoken His word and His law. And people have crossed what God has said. They have transgressed it. The word... Sin, in in verse 1, is about aiming for a mark and falling short. And in verse 2, the idea of iniquity is taking something and twisting, contorting it. This twistedness, this distortion, this waywardness, this boundary crossing, these are all pictures in the Old Testament to describe for us what has happened. So what is it that has brought about such a need for a Redeemer? What is it that in our state, as being made in the image of God, has now required the redeeming grace of God, lest we die in our sins? It is that we are transgressors, sinners, and those who have committed iniquity. Though these words are a bit different, they all point at the same idea of the problem gone wrong within us. Then there are words connected to these ideas of sin. In verse 1, transgression is forgiven. In verse 1, sin is covered. And in verse 2, iniquity is not counted. So in addition to three very important terms about our sinfulness, three very important accomplishments of God toward sinners. Namely, forgiveness, covered, and not counting. Why is the believer to rejoice in such a happy state? Because the transgression that was counted against us has been no longer uh, borne upon us, but a burden lifted. That's what it means to be forgiven in verse 1. The transgression is forgiven. It's the idea of, of being pressed upon by something and it being taken up and carried away. Some have connected this to the Day of Atonement ritual in Leviticus 16. Where symbolically the transfer of all of Israel's iniquities was done by the high priest pressing his hands upon the head of this animal that would run into the wilderness. To symbolize the bearing away or the forgiving of the sins of the people. Sin being covered in verse 1 is the idea of God with his love and steadfast grace and covenant. Concealing or covering so that it would no longer have the effect that it would. Imagine a terrible fire that is uh, going to break out and then some uh, quick thinking in the right. Uh, maybe it's uh, the lid for a, a stove pot or, or some sort of blanket. And all of a sudden the oxygen is snuffed out and the power of sin and its penalty overcome by the covering grace of God. 
In verse 2, this is about iniquity not counted against you. A debt that you owed, but that was paid instead. I remember a few years ago, we were at a restaurant with our family, and there was a table nearby that saw us with our young children, even younger children at the time, and uh, being out at the restaurant with young children is more of a marathon experience than a totally relaxing one, and so you're, you're going through all the, the motions of getting food, and, and, and they thought, well, you know, this, this family, look at, them, look at them go, and they're staying for the whole time, and, and by the time we were ready to leave, um, we, uh, we uh, got word that our meal had been paid for. An amount that we owed that somebody else had paid. A debt that we were expecting to receive and yet was no longer going to be counted against us. Well, in a very small analogy there, let's make the largest kinds of truth that Psalm 32 is declaring. Here you and I had accrued a debt with all of our transgressions, sin, and iniquity. And Christ takes the debt we owe and He pays the wages of sin in our place. So that... Our debt, our sin, is not counted against us any longer. That's what it means to be forgiven. That our transgressions have been carried away, covered by the grace of God, and no longer counted against us. The Apostle Paul loved these two verses of Psalms. In his magisterial book to the Romans, he says in Romans chapter 4, that the people of God are justified not by their works in the sight of God, but by grace Through faith alone. And he appeals, of all places in the Old Testament, to Psalm 32. Paul quotes in Romans 4, verses 7 and 8, these words of David. And this is to show us, friends, that the gospel of grace in the New Testament is the same gospel of saving grace in the Old Testament. How were people saved when they are in their sinful condition in the Old and New Testaments? By the grace of God and have no merit of their own. And the reason Paul tells that to the Romans is because David wrote it to his readers in the Old Testament as well. So Paul says that to the one who believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, faith is counted as righteousness, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, Paul quotes, and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts not his sin. The Apostle Paul, declaring these truths from Psalm 32 to his readers, is rejoicing in the blessed state of his people. But before we leave the blessed state of forgiven sinners, there's one final line at the end of verse 2. Do you see it? The one in whose spirit there is no deceit. And if there are only two verses in this psalm, it might be left upon us some ambiguity of what it means to have no deceit in one's spirit. But we do have other verses. And verses 3 and following are going to clarify what this means. Verse 3 is going to talk about not keeping silent. or Well, first keeping silent, but then no longer in verses 3 through 5. And the silence that was kept for a time and then overcome was the reluctance to acknowledge one's sin before God, to deny that it mattered, to try to cover it up on our own. And here's the message of the Scriptures. If we try to cover up our sin, the Lord will expose it. And if we will bring our sin to the Lord, the Lord will cover it. This is the message of the Gospel, that we cannot handle all our sin and shame. Instead, we come to Christ, our mighty refuge, who welcomes us in repentance and confession. 
This is what the end of verse 2 begins to hint at that verses 3 through 5 makes clearer. Verses 3 through 5 is about the importance of confessing sin. And if someone is portraying something else to be the case, that they don't have a problem with their sin, or that their sin wouldn't warrant any judgment, or that they haven't actually committed anything before God to be counted against them, then that's a person in whose spirit is deceit. It reminds me of 1 John 1, that if someone denies that they've sinned, they have lied and they're not living by the truth. In 1 John 1 and in 1 John 2, the delusion in our sinful condition would be to downplay the problem of our transgressions. And I tell you, friends, the reason there was a cross raised outside Jerusalem is not because we have a small problem of occasional transgression. But rather the power of a cross where a Savior stood in our place to satisfy the judgment due to our sins. So let us not have a spirit in which there is a denial or a deceit about reality. Paul says, not Paul, I quoted from him in Romans 4. We're back to David in Psalm 32. In fact, if I say Paul from here forward, I probably mean David. And David says in Psalm 32, 3, so here's what I did wrong. That I shifted from. I kept silent about this. This problem of sin in my life. My transgressions. My iniquity. I tried to cover it myself. I kept it silent. And here's what happened. I felt the effects in my heart and mind and wholeness of life. By trying to cover up my sin. Rather than coming to God with it. He says when I kept silent. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Sin does not bring you inner peace and joy and contentment. Listen to the testimony of David. David is testifying here and we need ears to hear it. He says, when I had my transgressions and I thought, I'm just going to keep silent about this. He said, that did not go well for me. That did not create flourishing in my soul. That did not help me to walk peacefully before God. That did not help me live out what I've been made for. When I kept silent, it's as if I were wasting away because sin is self-destructive. Listen to David's testimony. He says in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And in the promised land of Israel, they would know the dry heat of summer. We've been having a little touch of that ourselves, actually. I think this next week we're going to see a bit more of that. David knows what it is to have the dryness set in of seasons. And he says, my strength was sapped from me. Sin does not accomplish peace in your heart. Covering your iniquities rather than repenting and confessing our sin before God does not produce contentment and joy. And it does not strengthen you. Sin weakens you, sin deludes us, and it does not deliver on all of its promises. David here is testifying the importance of confessing sin. And what he's acknowledged in verses 3 and 4 is that there was a time when I wasn't. I was just keeping silent about it. I wasn't bringing it to God. I wasn't talking with anyone else about it day and night. I felt a heaviness upon my life, a burden. And in verse 5, here's what he did. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. 
So he changes life strategies here. And the life strategy you and I need to zone in on from the scriptures is to turn from wickedness and repent of our sin and come to God as our refuge and strength. Sin will not do for you what you think it will. Instead, it will cause in your life and bring consequences to your life that you might be quite confident now are not in your future. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover it. Instead, I uncovered it. I uncovered my sin because you, O Lord, are the only one who can deal with my sin. So why am I going to cover it up? I'm going to come to you, O God, and I'm going to say, here I am, Lord, with all my sin. And the Lord's not going to recoil. He's not going to go, oh my, this is so much worse than I had imagined. I didn't realize this was the big problem. You know, you seem like others in your life as well that did draw the same conclusion that you really had it all together. But look at your iniquity. There's no shock. There's no recoiling. There's instead the warm welcome of the forgiving grace of God to sinners as they turn to him. This is David's testimony. He keeps going in verse 5. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There's our deepest need right there. Our deepest need is to be those forgiven of our sin. There's not a single image bearer in the world without this need. There are many differences in all the lives and backgrounds of people we meet throughout the world. This is the common human problem. The need for forgiveness. And he says, I will confess it to the Lord. And here's what you did. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. If you don't think your sin is a problem, you're not going to go to God. Just like if you're not sick, you're not going to be rushing to the doctor. You're not thinking to yourself, I need to get to the doctor today. Unless you really feel like there's a pressing need. I'm not talking about... You know, a typical appointment with your GP. I'm talking about the urgency that's going to drive you to urgent care or some emergency room somewhere where you realize the pressing need upon your body. Here in verse 5, David doesn't go to the Lord unless he knows what his own problem is and what the Lord can do. And you shall not go to Christ unless you feel and sense your need for him. If you sense the gravity of your sin, the horror of our transgressions before God, and have a sense of His great righteousness and holiness, the Bible calls you to go to the God who is holy, that He might bring a righteousness to our lives that is not our own. That He might justify us by a grace that we did not merit, but that of His mercy He grants. So flee to Christ. You will find that David's testimony becomes your testimony. You will find that you go to God who welcomes you with His open arms of grace and you will say like David, I came to God, I spoke of my sin and He forgave me of my iniquity. In verses 6 and 7, this is David's application. In verses 6 and 7, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Those who are godly, there are those who want to fear the Lord. Those who want to turn from evil. Those who want to look to God as their refuge. They don't want wickedness to be their future, even if it had been their past. They want Christ as their present and future. They want everlasting life. They don't want to perish in their sin because they know it's what they deserve. And so he says in verse 6, Offer prayer to God. 
call upon the Lord. You say, okay, I have have this sin, the shame of my transgressions. What do I do? Listen to David. David wants you to do what he did. And he says, turn to God, call upon the Lord. Cry out to him for mercy. Offer prayer to him. He says, at a time when he may be found. Now, somebody might think, somebody in this room might think, I can follow Christ whenever I'm good and ready. Whenever I want. I can follow Christ, not today, but at some point, I know I will want to follow Christ. Listen carefully to David here. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Then surely in the rush of great waters, they, these waters, shall not reach him. Talking about the the refuge of the one who calls upon the Lord. This one, the rush of great waters, of all sorts of circumstances and conditions, griefs and trials, enemies and snares, try to overwhelm the soul that is found in God. And those waters shall not destroy the one who knows God. Those, that rush of great waters, shall not reach him who has called upon the Lord. He is built upon a rock. He's in the refuge of Christ. And the evil one and his accusatory, condemning words shall not have the effect. Instead, mercy and the preserving grace of God is ours. But, what about the one who says, not now. Later, I will turn to the Lord when I want. I want to say to you, my friend, no, you can't. You think you will turn to the Lord in the future. How can you possibly know that? How can you possibly think you can control the calcifying, numbing effect of sin upon your heart and conscience? And though today your heart might be pricked by the word of God, you shall not turn to Christ, but instead with a delusion of self-confidence think, no, I have all the time. You do not. Have all the time. I can go to Christ whenever I want. You cannot go whenever you want. You must go today. When today is the day of salvation. The day he may be found. The day he may be found. You think a future day shall be your day of salvation. When it may be your day of judgment. You must hear the testimony of David. There is an urgency here. He says let everyone then call upon the Lord. While he may be found. And then in the rush of the great waters, they shall not reach that one who has gone to the Lord. You, in verse 7, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here is the believer who experiences the liberating grace of God. The forgiveness of their many sins. Pardon from their guilt and shame. This one has a hiding place in God. Now preserved by the power and grace of God. Oh, what a great gospel this is. What a great gospel this is. All the torrents of destruction can do their worst. And here is one whose refuge is God. The writer of Hebrews. We need to hear him here. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So if someone says, I don't need to bring my sin to the Lord right now. I don't need to confess my sin to the Lord. In fact, I'm just going to try to keep covering things on my own. Then you are experiencing in real time the deceitfulness of sin at work upon you. That is why you're thinking what you're thinking. 
You should hear the testimony of David and heed his plea that you call upon the Lord for mercy, that he might be your hiding place of salvation. You will surround me at the end of verse 7 with shouts of deliverance. The idea of shouts there are shouts in song. The people of God were delivered through the mighty waters of the Red Sea that stood up so that they could walk on dry ground in Exodus 14. And after the Lord delivered them, you know what they did? They exploded in song in Exodus 15, the famous song of Moses, where they celebrated the power of God and His grace and strength where the wicked had been defeated and His people had been vindicated. In verse 7, being surrounded by shouts of deliverance is to picture that your life is not just your own, not your own, but not a life that is alone, but rather a life that is anchored with and surrounded by shouts of the people of God who know their own experience of God's delivering grace. And they rejoice with you and for you and unto God for what He's done. Shouts of deliverance. Songs of deliverance. This is why we love to sing together. We don't just come and speak lyrics out loud like we do in reciting the creed. There is music and singing so that we are hearts surrounded by shouts of deliverance. Shouts of victory and cries and laments of the, for the strength of God in our tr- many troubles. We need this. You and I need this. We need to hear and to meditate on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We need to hear it. We need to sing it. We need to rejoice in it. We need to hear about wonder-working power that's in the blood. And blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And because He lives, I can face tomorrow. And it is well, it is well with my soul. We need to hear before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. We need to hear about how through many dangers and toils and snares, I've already come. And His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. These, these are shouts of deliverance. Surround me with songs of truth, because life is hard. And in this fallen world, we are surrounded by all sorts of lies and deceptions. So, let's surround ourselves with songs of truth. They're going to point us to Christ. And serve what our souls need, songs that shine light in the darkness. When David gives you this testimony, verses 8 and 9 come next. And in verses 8 and 9, there is language here that probably is not just David's voice. But rather David communicating something to the reader from the Lord himself. When Old Testament commentators write about Psalm 32, over and over again, the position they take is that verses 8 and 9 are likely a word from the Lord through David to the people. So that God is saying through David to us, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. There are a couple reasons why interpreters would say this is the word of the Lord here and not just the word of David. We wouldn't expect it to necessarily be in quotation marks. There aren't original Hebrew quotation marks to put in round words and and statements. And so in a translator's judgment and an interpreter's judgment, we see here an earlier statement in chapter 25 where David says, 
Lord, make me to know your ways. Teach me, lead me, teach me. You're the God of my salvation. A cry in an earlier psalm that God would lead him and instruct him. That God would guide him and teach him. This is God's promise through David to the people. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. The Lord is my shepherd and he's the one that leads me, right? By green pastures and still waters and through the valley of the shadow of death, he leads me in the way I should go. But there's another element, not just in Psalm 25. In Psalm 32, notice in verse 8, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This connects to the concept of the watchfulness of God, not of David, over the hearts of his people throughout the land and throughout the world. I mean, David can't see everybody's life. But the watchful eye of God is the promise here through David and also for David. And also all who have the testimony of David. That I came to God with my sin and he forgave me of all my iniquity. God's promise is to instruct his people. He does not leave us after delivering us and freeing us from our sin. He guides and instructs. He upholds and sustains. He nourishes and shepherds. God says, I will instruct you and teach you. That's what being a disciple is. We spoke about this in the baptism this morning. When we watched Alyssa get baptized, we were reminding ourselves that we are following Christ as disciples. And what disciples are doing is they are making public their profession of faith. And disciples are those who are learners of the Christ whom they follow. God says here, well, that's not in vain, that pursuit of me. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. We can rest assured of the watchful care of God in our lives and the truthfulness of all of his promises in his word to guide and instruct and to teach and mature us in the faith. And we're told in verse 9, be not like a stubborn mule. Okay, verse 9 is the resistance of an animal who does not want to be led or guided. This is an animal that wants to go its own way. David says, listen, I know what people can be like. And so I want you to think about a horse or a mule. And he says, they can lack understanding. They've got to be curbed with a bit and a bridle or they're not going to stay near you. David knows what it is like. And we have pictures in our minds. You might have been in circumstances where you've, you've seen this firsthand. The difficulty of a stubborn animal not wanting to be guided. A problem of sin upon our hearts and minds leaves us not only a condition of great need, but a desire in our pride not to turn to the Lord. To continue instead going steadfastly in our way, digging our heels in as if we've got to have a bit and a bridle to go one way or the other. God says, I'm going to instruct you and teach you Don't be like a stubborn mule. The opposite of pride is humility and openness. The willingness and repentant heart to be guided and receive the directing words of God in our lives. Verses 8 and 9 are God's words to us. A promise in verse 8 and a plea in verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. Don't look at David's testimony and say, I'm not going to repent. You would be living out then what verse 9 tells you not to do. Come humbly before the Lord. Humility is the way. Humility is the way of life. The Bible teaches in, in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction. 
Humbly come to the Lord. Call upon Him with an open heart. Pray for His mercy and that He welcome us. Not only that He would save us, but grow us in wisdom and teach us and instruct us as His people. The last two verses of our psalm this morning are about the different conditions of the wicked and the righteous. Some people believe that this is the ongoing words of God from verses 8 and 9 as well. And that that continues. Could be. I think it's difficult to be sure. This could be David now. Not not quoting any longer a word from the Lord. But simply making an observation in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. If you will turn from the Lord. And you will go steadfastly on a path of rebellion. Then you should hear the words of David here in verse 10. Many are the sorrows, the griefs in store. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And this is David's observation so that we can look at the paths before us. Do I want the path of the wicked of many sorrows and judgment? Or do I want the path of life and steadfast love of trust in the Lord and his instructing hand in my life? The observation is laid out for us. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Steadfast love is a statement of covenant. His covenant faithfulness. His love and righteousness that upholds and surrounds. That guards and protects. That guides and sees all the way home. His people. His steadfast love surrounds us. The people of God wake every morning in in the steadfast love of the Lord. We go throughout our day surrounded by the merciful, steadfast love of God. We lay our heads on our pillows at night, guarded by and surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord. This is true in verse 10 for the one who trusts in the Lord. So therefore, trust in the Lord. Cast yourself upon his mercy. In verse 11 The command for the people of God, those identified in verse 11 as the righteous or the upright in heart, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy. Those are the commands. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. Makes me think of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it, rejoice. The Apostle Paul doesn't doesn't mind telling you the same thing more than once. He calls you to rejoice. And the psalmist reminds me of Paul. In Psalm 32, 11, be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. He doesn't want you to just inwardly remain joyful. In the end, it will burst forth in songs of deliverance and celebration. Be glad in the Lord. And that phrase, in the Lord, is about all that God has done for us. It's shorthand of saying, thinking on God and His mighty deeds and His delivering grace, to be glad in the Lord is, to, is something we do in response to our awareness of what God has done. With the gravity of our sin and the exceeding glory of His mercy, be glad in the Lord. That though we had deserved judgment and Christ has welcomed us to find rest for our souls, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous Isaiah 53, 4 says, He has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. In Isaiah 53, 12, He bore the sin of many and He makes intercession for transgressors. Don't try to cover your sin. Uncover it before the Lord. Acknowledge and confess your sin to the Lord. And you will find your burden removed. From John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, 
The text says, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load upon his back. He ran this till he came at a place somewhat ascending and upon that place there stood a cross and little below in the bottom a sepulcher, a tomb. So in my dream, and just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. And then Christian was glad. Yes, he was. And yes, we shall be glad in the Lord for he has forgiven us of our sins. Let's pray.